Man, y'all know the face, y'all know the name. You're tuning into the world's greatest podcast, Talk Ain't Cheap Podcast. It's hosted by yours truly, Mr. It's the movie Cletus Real Talk. And I got a special guest with me. By now, you all know I do not introduce my guests. I feel like when I do, I shortchange my guests. So, special guest, please introduce yourself. My name is Richard Wright. I'm a professor at Howard University. I have been a professor here uh, for 50 years. In fact, those 50 years will come to an end in May when I plan to retire. Man, so... 50 years dedicated to something is a feat in itself. Why education? And when did education become your purpose? Well, the foundation for my education was in segregation. I grew mm -hmm. up, I was born in 1940, um, 42, I mean. And uh, so uh, I was born in an era when segregation was real. And uh, it was pervasive. It was all I knew. I grew up exclusively among black people. Um, all of my friends were black, my neighbors were black, my schoolmates were black. When I went to black stores, everybody was black. I grew up in a segregated black northeast community of Washington, D.C. Okay. And <clears throat> education, since you mentioned that specifically, education was always a priority. It was understood that when you went to school, you went to school to do well. You went to school to be successful. There was no play. Teachers were uncompromising about that. They were unrelenting in terms of your responsibilities. Um, you respected your teachers. You respected them as if they were your parents, because mm -hmm. as long as you were with them away from home, they were your parents as far as your, your, your responsibilities. So we had a culture that emphasized responsibility to be well-prepared, to be well-educated. And so my foundation was in segregation right here in Washington, D.C., when education during the time I was in school was taken very seriously. So what was the education like at that time during segregated Washington, D.C., for black, for young black and brown students? Okay, well, really, living in segregation where all you have is, is, is the clear presence of others who look like you, um, doing what you're doing and, and understanding their responsibilities. Education was simply one of the understood responsibilities that you owed. You, you, you owed your parents and you owed uh, your, your community. You owed them a total commitment to being well-educated, being well-prepared. The whole idea of being black and uneducated was unacceptable. Mm. There, there, was a, there was an attitude that... Um, in fact, one of my teachers, to give you an idea, in, in class, I remember talking one time, and my teacher had to say something to me, and, 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 and she called me out on it, and she said, boy, don't you understand you got to be twice as good to get half as much? Hmm. So there was an attitude that you know, your play is, is contributing to your weakness. So, so, so education was simply a means to ensure that you don't leave here with my cooperation being unprepared for the world that you have to face. So education was simply part of the culture of preparedness. That was just something that you lived, something that you were not allowed not to be, and everybody understood that. No, understandable. Wow, that's, that's deep, because I felt like in my generation, it's more of a luxury to be edu educated. It's looked as a privilege versus a, an, an inalienable right or responsibility as someone who comes from maybe conditions where you're marginalized or you may not have certain opportunities to kind of elevate the way you want to. 
So education for me has always been exactly what you said, like it's a responsibility, but it's also a way in, to position myself. Okay, well, yeah, that that whole attitude that be, one being black, uh, I grew up in a working class, lower working class uh, neighborhood of Northeast Washington D.C. My father was um, someone who got employed whenever he could in different in different areas until he became a, a preacher. Um, so we grew up in very humble circumstances, very humble beginnings. Uh, but it, there was a, a sense of order and, and expectation, uh, strong discipline, commitment uh, that you owed in every area of your life. In school, you owed it to your teachers. In church, you owed it to the people of the church. In the neighborhood, you owed it to your neighbors. At home, you owed it to your parents. It was, there was just a, a kind of a feeling that you grew up in that you had, you had a responsibility to, to be in a structure that was about... Uh, ensuring your safety and your success. So what do you believe happened to that structure? Because um, nowadays, you know, within this generation, it seems to be like, you know, there's not a lot of fathers in these homes and there's not that structure or like there's this whole notion that like parents can't raise their kids anymore, right? So what do you believe happened um, that kind of went away from that structure? Well, um, one of the things that I've, I've felt for quite a while is that Segregation was not all bad because it created a space uh, that uh, black people had some serious ownership for. Um, Although it was mandated uh, by federal law uh, that black people be segregated, the real issue is not so much the fact of being segregated, but what you did with the space and the opportunity you had while segregated. And um, I think the one thing that we, that we had there um, uh, was full responsibility for how we turned out. Uh, we didn't have the interference of other people. We didn't have influences coming into the home that parents didn't allow. Okay? So with, with the advancement of so-called society, all the changes that have taken place since segregation, or what we call desegregation now, um, so many more influences have been brought to bear on black people, on black families, on the black community, if there is such a thing anymore. Um, <laughs> they're, they're just, it, it, there's just too much coming in that is out of control. And one of the things about segregation was it restricted the range of possible experience that you could have. It restricted the range of possible influences that could be brought upon you. Of course, because we didn't have all the technology and all the open media that we have now, which, which meant that parents truly did control you. They, they knew your friends. They knew where you were. Uh, the phone calls okay, came through the home and could be heard. There was no taking a phone to the room. And I mean, everything was, was accessible to being monitored. So it, 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 segregation provided, at least for me and the world that I knew, a, a rather controlled environment, environment in which I was subject to the influences that my, my parents had responsibility for. So I think with the, with the decline in eventual uh, death knell of segregation and, and the entry of desegregation, new influences just began to swarm in to the black community as, as it was emerging out of segre- segregation. Um, and um, I really think that uh, so much has happened since then 
that is out of control in terms of, of influences, messaging, uh, the, the ability of young people to identify with influences that are unconnected to the black community, uh, being able to create identities away from home and so forth. Uh, there's just so much that separates you from community or from connectedness to foundation and fundamentals. And now you can, you know, see it your own way, go it your own way, you know, be with who you want to be away from structure, discipline, order, this kind of thing. I, I think segregation was the very opposite of all of that. So when you lose all of that, then a kind of looseness comes in and di directionality, you know, where all this can take you, your sense of obligation, who you're obligated to. And even that whole issue of, of who you're obligated to is, is, is an open question now. You know, like, where, where are you obligated? You know, in my, in my day, we were clear. So, so much has happened to the, the black community and to black people. We've become more mainstream. Mm -hmm. And mainstream is always a kind of um, alienating kind of dynamic from community because it emphasizes the individual. It emphasizes you over the collective. So therefore, with desegregation coming in, black people gradually moved more and more and closer and closer to mainstream individuality and what's associated with being able to go it, as it were, alone kind of thing, which is very alien to the world that I knew. No, understandable. And speaking about alien, right, you were part of the University of Texas is one of the first classes to be desegregated. Um, at that university. What was that like around that time? Well, uh, I went to the University of Texas in, in 1965. I was, I was at the time 23 years old. I had just come back from finishing Howard University. Of course, this is a big jump from where I was, but, but um, uh, when I went to, to the University of Texas in 1965, I was not well received. Um, the university was, was undergoing desegregation and, of course, was under court order to desegregate. Um, so black people there were, um, were seen as um, undesirables. Um, for the first week, I, did, I had no place to live uh, when I went to the city because the city was segregated. Uh, there was one black dorm. It was already filled at the University of Texas. So uh, I had a rough time just being able to, you know, you know get housing, getting a place to live. My, I remember my, my mother telling me, uh, when I told her what my my uh, struggle was, she said, "Boy, you don't have you don't you don't have to go through that. Why don't you just come on home?" I said, "I can't do it." I said, "I'm here for a reason. I'm, I I came to get something, and I can't let them keep me from having it." So, therefore, I I stayed. I finally did get housing after about seven eight days, um, but my reception was one of coldness and and, and indifference, even in classes. Um, my, my classmates were looking at me rather strangely. Uh, although I was at the graduate level, I, I, I didn't feel comfortable being there. But my attitude was that, I, you know, I had gone through enough preparation uh, to know that my strength was in myself and I didn't have to be dependent upon uh, whether someone accepted me, liked me, wanted me or whatever. I came to get an education much like I went to school to get an education. The, the idea is you have to focus on the fundamentals. Mm -hmm. I learned in segregation that it's not supposed to be easy. I learned in, seg in segregation you're not supposed to be liked. 
I learned in segregation that the only thing that ultimately matters is how prepared you are for what it is that you have to face. So my attitude was, as long as I know where the library is, then I don't have to bother with you. Because I came to get an education not to make friends. So I was very much into a sense of, of readiness to take on the challenge of being marginalized, of being disliked or, or, or being disrespected, you know, because I didn't, I didn't go there to be loved. I, I went there to take a degree. I was fully supported by the institution. I had a full, full ride uh, scholarship to work on a, on a master's degree, which I, which I completed in, in two years. Uh, so segregation prepared me uh, for the roughness of an institution that was now fully white. I mean, the institution was 99.9% .9 white. So I have to look back on, on, on my preparation in my own school system and in my own neighborhood, in my own family, to not worry about the externals, to worry about primarily the internals. I went strong, I went well prepared. I knew I was ready for whatever they were gonna throw at me when it came to challenges that were academic. Of course, nobody ever approached me physically or became violent with me. Um, I think over time I did earn the respect of people at least to say, well, just, just leave him alone because, you know, he's good. He's, he, he's, he's good at what he does. So it was my competence, my show of strength, my, my, my refusal to be weak, to, to be apologetic, to be, to be sad because you don't like me. I mean, all that kind of stuff. I mean, I, I think I showed them a strength that they didn't anticipate. And I think I learned that in segregation. You, you learn in segregation to be the presence that you need given the situation you face. And I learned that. I learned that at home. I learned that at church. I learned that in my neighborhood. I learned that at school. And speaking of school, because I, I, I didn't mean to skip over Howard and your time at Howard, but, um, you know, what role did Howard uh, prepare you for that? Because, you know, my question really, where I really want to get to is, was Howard necessary at that time, being that there was already segregation? And because we, we speak about these historical black colleges and universities kind of as these places where, you know, black students go to be educated by, you know, people who look like them, but also as a place that protects black education and black uh, academia in a way that these white schools didn't give black people those opportunities. So for you, being that you were, you know, you were at Howard at that time, did Howard kind of prepare you for desegregation or was it one of those things that it was just like Howard was just Howard, just another place that you go to and like that's where you went? Well, um, first of all, let me just simply say that Howard, that this nation owes Howard University uh, a debt, hmm. a, a debt, one in respect, but also in recognition that it was Howard University uh, in fact, the lawyers at the law school of Howard University who argued the desegregation case before the Supreme Court. I mean, it was Howard that put desegregation into the books as, as a credible uh, foundation for life in this country. Uh, and so Howard, Howard for me, when I, when I went to Howard, was always thought of as a strong institution that would take me from where I was to where I wanted to be as a strong young man. Okay, so I, I came to Howard feeling good about coming here, about being accepted here, and wanting to be here. Now, I did have a changing moment, you know, in my life um, 
and when I came to Howard, um, the civil rights movement was in full bloom. Um, this was in 1960 when I when I when I came, um, uh, and um, although my primary orientation was academic, I just wanted to continue my strong preparation from 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 high school. Uh, so I was into the books. I was you know I wasn't into the politics that much. I, I wasn't oriented you know into the civil rights movement to the extent that I was because I came from an apolitical family. Um, but something happened to me in, in the fall of 1961. I was taking a government class, uh, U.S. government, 610, uh, and our professor uh, alerted us to the fact that um, we were going to have a visitor to campus um, and that um, we should go because it's a very important opportunity for us to gain experiences uh, beyond the classroom. And it so happened that the person that he was talking about was Malcolm X. Mm. Malcolm X uh, had been invited to Howard um, to actually um, uh, be a, a main presenter. Uh, and in fact, he came to debate Bayard Rustin, who was second in command at the time to uh, Roy Wilkins, who was um, uh, a director of the NAACP. Uh, so uh, they had a debate at Crampton Auditorium, and our professor alerted us to go to it. Uh, he didn't particularly inspire us to think that it was going to be something overly significant, um, because Malcolm X, of course, was Malcolm X, and he represented a totally different orientation from NAACP. Uh, and um, uh, he, but he still felt that you should go and you know see what he has to say, kind of thing. So he wasn't built up as somebody that we just got to go here. I mean, he's he he's got a message for you. You know, you got to get it. Uh, so uh, when I went, uh, I I I had known him and I hadn't seen him. I hadn't read anything about him. I just knew what was going on from the papers and and so forth about his life and and where he was as a leader of the black Muslims and so forth. But um, Malcolm put on the show. I mean, by by that I mean he. Um, you know, he, he was he's a lean, he was a lean fellow, uh, fair skinned, and sort of reddish hair, you know. Um, but he had a he had a booming, thundering voice. I mean, he had a, he had the kind of voice that looked beyond his his physical figure, you know. And so he was already impressive just by hearing his voice. He was very very powerful um, in presence and 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 in voice. Okay, so. Um, uh, his message overall was not so much to defeat the NACP or, or, or talk exclusively about the rightness of his cause and all this, because he recognized that this monster called racism needed to be confronted on as, on as many fronts as possible. Okay, so doubt, yeah. okay, but but the one thing that that he did was he 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 said that university students have a role to play here. You know, you're not here just to get an education. You have work to do. There aren't that many of you who can get here. So you're privileged to be here. He didn't go to, to, to a, a school. His school was the world and prison. Okay, so he, he complimented us. He won, But he wanted us to see ourselves as having a role, but we have to find what that is. Okay, so he challenged us. And that's when I recognized my responsibility to do whatever I could to put myself into the struggle.
So he, he, in a sense, politicized me. He charged me up with not just being well-educated and looking out for yourself and being strong as an individual, contributing to black people as you can, but there's a struggle going on here, and you've got to find your way in it, and this kind of thing. So, um, so Howard, as, he was part of a total set of experiences where Howard connected me to being not only a black prepared person, but to be sure that I'm always connected to the struggle. To, to, be, to be someone who, in your own way, uh, you're doing that. And as a professor, I always took Malcolm with me in terms of his spirit, his spirit of activism, his spirit of using your competence to make a difference, his whole sense of his work for you to do, mm-hmm. okay? And we all have to do it our own way, but we have to be about doing it kind of thing, you know. So that, that has always stayed with me, and I've taken that throughout my life. And as a professor here at Howard, I've always wanted to inspire my students with that. So, I, I mean, they're connected to, to Malcolm through me, because what he gave me, I give them. So there is that connectivity that I feel very, very deeply. And I think Howard still has that role to play, to be about change agency, to be about the preparation of substantive leadership for substantive needed social change. Um, so Howard gave me that. I mean, Howard gave me that. I was inspired by that. And I, I have lived that uh, throughout my career. That's beautiful and well put. Uh, just for the sake of time, uh, I just want to have my final question. And before I give you my final question, I just want to say thank you so much for your time, Dr. Yes. Wright. And just yes, thank sir. you for everything you've done for me ever since we've met during COVID <laughs> and me attending for my um, very brief stint here. I appreciate you. I appreciate your support. I, I appreciate your enthusiasm. I appreciate the energy that you brought every single day to your job and to just us. And like I said, you are definitely the bright spot, if not one of the only bright spots of our time, well, my time at Howard. Well, thank you, sir. And uh, I just, that's why I had to come and see you face-to-face, and I had to make sure that I got to share this moment with you. My final question yeah. um, before, uh, uh, before you leave is, uh, what do you hope your legacy will be? Like, what do you hope to have left behind? Because 50 years at Howard is crazy. Like, I don't know <laughs> anyone who's done 50 years of anything. So 50 years at Howard in itself is crazy. So mm-hmm. what do you hope? your legacy will be, or what do you hope your legacy, the, the, the legacy that you'll leave behind will be? Well, I, I, hope, I hope that my students, all of them, have all felt the same thing that I felt that I wanted to give, and that is a total love of, of, of black people, how they have overcome struggle, um, that they are, they are a beautiful people with so much to offer the world because they have struggled. Um, they have work to do. I, I think there's so many changes that are needed in this, in, in this nation that I have said to them can only come from a committed black presence. And you have work to do. When you leave Howard, you must see yourself as being an agent of change. I want to I have a, a, a legacy that has reinforced the preparation of black people to do what only black people can do for a nation that has marginalized them, that has given them a sense of insignificance in terms of how they are seen. But a nation like this cannot come to its consciousness, cannot come to its wellness without the role that black people play in bringing that about. Mm -hmm. And I have wanted to be a faculty member, a presence at Howard University who sent students forward to be about that kind of work. 
And I think I have committed my life to that. And if there's a legacy, I'd want my students to say they remember me for that. No, without a doubt. And you say you're working on a book and a lot of research, you know, and uh, within 30 seconds, tell us about this book and tell us um, more about why you decided to do this type of research. Okay, well, my 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 uh, book is going to be in what's called an autoethnography. We've talked a little bit about it today. Um, I want to talk about my life in segregation and beyond. So I want to talk about the world that segregation was. Uh, I want to review a little bit something about the history of Washington, D.C., because Washington was an interesting world uh, for segregation. Segregation was different in different places in the country. Mm-hmm. Washington was a rather unique world because... Chocolate City. Going, yes, and going back to the 19th century, Washington became a mecca of black people. Many black people left the South to come to D.C. Many outstanding political and educational leaders left from where they were to come to D.C. D.C. became a mecca of a, a burgeoning black middle class, professional class. And, and I think Washington became the beneficiary of all these people being here. Okay? So my, my experience uh, in, in segregation really goes back to the world that they helped create. So I'm going to talk a little bit about the history of D.C., okay, and bringing it up to the time I was born. Uh, and then I want to talk about my life in segregation. I'm going to get a little bit deeper into what I was talking to you uh, about. Um, I want to um, connect it to the world that, that acted on us at that time because the world has changed. D.C. has changed fundamentally. I don't know this city relative to the city that I knew as a child. Okay? It's not the same world. Okay? Uh, education in D.C. is not the same education as it was when I grew up. Okay? So it is constitutionally different. So I'm going to pick that up as I go through, because I think in so many ways, when, when desegregation came along, a lot of the good things that we had in desegregation went by the wayside. So black people began to fall off and not benefit from the world that I knew. So I want to talk about that world, because in so many ways, black people did some really good things when they had the space and the time to do it all for themselves and for each other. I'm going to talk about that, okay, because segregation really has had a, a bad rap nationally, you know, and, and rightfully so because it was an imposition. But at the same time, the real story is not the imposition. The real story is what people saw themselves as having opportunity to seize and do for themselves. So segregation was really a moment in time when black people, at least in the city of Washington, D.C., did something real special. And I want to share with the world what that is. Awesome, awesome, awesome. So I, I see the time. I don't want to rush you, but uh, okay. I just want okay. to say thank you so much for your time, Dr. Yeah. Wright. Mm-hmm. And if people want to connect with you, how can they go about doing so? Well, um, I'm a professor at Howard University. Uh, I have an email, which is rwright at howard.edu. That's all I'm going to give out right now until I get to know who people are. Yes, sir. But you can at least contact me in that way. Yes, sir. Okay. <laughs> thank you okay. so much for okay. your time. Okay. And uh, like I said, you're tuning in Talk Ain't Cheap, powered by the Cletus Group, hosted by yours truly, Mr. The Movie Cletus Real Talk. And y'all know the slogan, you're tuning in Talk Ain't Cheap. It's not that deep. It's a vibe.